Fantastic Beasts. And where to find them? You're so musical, Mark. I am. It's Musical Monday. Actually, it's not Monday. It's an all-new episode of EW Binge of Harry Potter. And I can't even, like, talk about it because we're past the books. We're in uncharted territory. And today we're talking about Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Did you ever think we would be here, like, as you're reading the books and watching the movies, the original ones... Did you think that there'd be a whole other universe, five more films? Absolutely not. Like, I I, <laughs> I, honestly feel like there's now more Harry Potter than there was in the Harry Potter books. You know what I mean? Like, the Absolutely. world is so much bigger. And as we will discuss today, um, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Lord knows fans are uh, up in arms about this brand new entry in the Harry Potter saga. If we can even call it that. It's, it's a whole new thing. It's the Newt Scamander saga. Well, I mean, I don't know. It is it is its own thing, but there are also so many ties to what we've already seen. And, yeah. and that'll continue to unfold as these films continue to come out. But even with this one, and we'll get into it, there are connections to things that we've Seen in the original books and movies. Yeah, so let's call this movie number nine. <laughs> uh, we're going to be, there'll, there will be 14 Wizarding World movies. And then, I mean, and that's not all. You know, God knows we just need a McGonagall trilogy after this. I mean, that's but what I know I've been asking for this whole I, podcast. That's <laughs> all I want. I know your thoughts on this. <laughs> um, so, yes, today Molly and I are going a little loose. We're not going to be all that structured today with, you know, 10 outbursts, 10 this and that. I'm making fun of ourselves. <laughs> you got to. We're self-aware. But we are going to get real deep about the characters that we meet in Fantastic Beasts, about the creatures that are unleashed out of Newt's kind of cute suitcase. I'm not going to lie. It's a, it's a very good bag. I would use that suitcase. Uh, yeah. It's I would cute. I would watch you use that suitcase. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about Makusa, which is the magical congress of the United States. We're, of course, going to talk about Gellert Grindelwald, the big reveal. Oh, yeah. I should say, if you didn't watch Fantastic Beasts, definitely turn us off right now. Yeah, no, spoilers are about to hit hard. Yeah, but also um, subscribe on iTunes. <laughs> and then finally, we've got some theories. The internet is a buzz with what is going to happen next. How will this movie tie into other stories we know and other characters? And yeah, so we're going to go right on in with the EW binge of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. <laughs> So Molly, uh, what are what's the pertinent info about this film? First off, uh, well, a little bit of the industry background. Um, it came out November eighteenth, so just a few weeks ago. It made about seventy five million uh, domestically its opening weekend. I like that the, the release date is industry background. <laughs> like, oh yeah, all the trades are talking about this release date. Coming at you with those uh, EW that expertise. hot reporting. <laughs> uh, this was also J.K. Rowling's screenwriting debut. Molly, first thoughts. How do you feel about the script, which is actually published? We have it right here on our desk. We do. Um, it is a published screenplay. J.K. Rowling, official screenwriter. I think it's interesting because, of course, she's the person who has all the insight, right? Like, as she's going about... I mean, we know she was very much involved in the original movies, and she, you know, sort of lent information to the actors and, and the writer and everything. But I'm not sure if she's totally there yet as a screenwriter just in small small nuances right. i guess well if you pick up the actual screenplay book the sc description is there you know 
And she's great at dialogue, of course, but you have to be really wise about your real estate of choices in a movie. You know, you only get so many lines and so many scenes and so many lines per scene. So she doesn't really get to go in as far as she might in a conversation um, in a chapter in a Harry Potter book. Right. And just sort of reading through people's reactions to the film online, going through comments and Reddit and all that sort of stuff. Something that I kept coming across is that there was so much exposition. And it's like, I don't know how much of that is necessarily to do with her foray into screenwriting versus this being the beginning of a new franchise. Because even when we were talking about Sorcerer's Stone, we had a hard time going through that because everything was new. And that's the same thing here. Yeah, I don't begrudge this at all for being exposition. And if anything, the big reveal at the end that that this is not just Newt's story, but the rise of Grindelwald, it's it's Grindelwald's story. This whole first film is exposition, not just the first half of the movie. But, um, yeah, I, I think we should totally separate, you know, her as screenwriter from the exposition. I, I will say she, as we know, she loves to pepper in little clues that are often just a single word here and there. But does that work if the clue is about a whole other movie? Do you know what I mean? Will we go back and look at this script with more appreciation once we see Fantastic Beasts 2? you know, fantastic or beasts. Oh my and God. Is this going to be like a two fantastic two? It's the two fantastic beasts. two beasts. <laughs> yeah. I actually, God knows what the next films are going to be titled. Eddie Redmayne actually gave an interview and said, I mean, he cleared it up. Not really, but he said, fantastic beasts is always going to be in the title, but um, you know, what will it be? Fantastic beasts and like two Niffler. Well, no, <laughs> fantastic beasts and like where, how to find them. Fantastic beasts. And, and, you know, who who are they? Like I don't a know. who, what, when, where, why, how. Yeah. Oh, also, by the way, I forgot to say, we have an interview. <laughs> I, uh, I interviewed Eddie Redmayne and Catherine Waterston. Eddie plays Newt and Catherine plays Tina. So we will be running that for you guys, sharing that with you. Um, this was done at Entertainment Weekly's Pop Fest a few weeks ago. But, of course, it, everything kind of sounds a little different now that we've seen the film. So stick around for that. Let's talk about Newt, right? So Newt Scamander is the guy that we're going to have to care about for the next however many years this thing goes. He is a character who we have heard about. He's not a brand new name, right? So J.K. Rowling had released a couple books for UK Comic Relief years ago. She wrote full-length versions of two Hogwarts textbooks, Quidditch of the Ages and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Newt Scamander has a little bit of a biography in that book, But we don't really know too much. All we know is that, one, he was a Hufflepuff, went to Hogwarts. Two, was expelled from Hogwarts. Although there is a discrepancy because in the book, in the textbook, it does say Newt graduated, but we know Newt was expelled. Like, that's kind of the new canon we're going with. And the question remains, how was he expelled? He's a magizoologist, so he obviously has always had a lifelong love of creatures, But Hagrid was expelled, and they kept his wand. They broke his wand, whereas Newt kept his wand. They let him. So, like, but we also know from the movie that there's, I mean, Dumbledore defended him, fought against his expulsion. Yeah, Dumbledore really fought hard to keep. Yeah, I mean, maybe there was some. It it was more obvious in Hagrid's case, whereas here there it was more of a gray area. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that's something that'll be explored. Yeah, Hagrid was straight up accused of murdering someone. (laughs) So, like, I understand that. But then um, Newt must have just endangered people. I bet Newt loved hanging out with Professor um, Sprout because he does like herbology and whoever the old magical creature's teacher was. 
before Hagrid, or e- I mean, even there. Ha- I'm sure we're like three generations ahead of it. Which, yeah, is another thing you need to know. We are in 1926, so the kids of the characters we see in the film, they're kind of the missing generation between this and and, and the Harry Potter years. You know, the 80s and the 90s. So when we get into people like Lita Lestrange and Rolf Scamander, who goes on to marry Luna, we're not talking necessarily, it's not as cut and dry as, oh, this must be Blank's mother. And I think that actually leads us nicely into the next characters, who are Tina and Queenie Goldstein. I love them. I love them. Oh, Queenie? Especially Queenie. Girl, Queenie, I I would go, I would go, um, I, I, let's just, I would go you wand for Queenie. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they're a pair of sisters, witch sisters, living in New York in the 1920s. And they are who Newt meets when he arrives in New York. Why is he in New York? Because he's got a... He's got a Thunderbird. He's got, he's he's got a He's trying to bring casual, that Thunderbird back home. Yeah, back to Arizona. And in the meantime, he gets caught up with Tina, who is an ex-Auror. Demoted. Yeah, what you have to know about where the Wizarding World is in America right now is that there is a real big difference between the idea of hiding in plain sight and the relationship between muggles and wizards in England. You know, so the International Statute of Secrecy is supposedly enacted hundreds of years prior, but there's two very different ideas, right? In England, there are entire wizarding communities. There are places like Diagon Alley and wizards who all live together, and um, and then there's wizard money, even. In America we see that wizards are very, very, very much a minority living in places owned by, you know, nomadges. Tina uses nomad money to buy a hot dog. Uh, Makusa is, isn't is even like its own kind of separate building. It's sort of a strange... It's like in... A regular nomad, a nomad building. building. It's a very strange kind of... And the pub, the, the wizard pub, is like hidden just by a poster. Everything is very secretive. And not only that, I mean, there are all... There are laws against befriending and even marrying nomads. Yeah, Queenie. Queenie says to Jacob, who's the the, the nomad that gets pulled into the story, he's like the first nomad she ever really talks to. I'm like, one, you can read minds, and two, yeah. By the way, Queenie can read minds, and <laughs> and two, like you're like a woman of a certain age, twenty something, you know, probably young, late twenties, early thirties, like. You really haven't talked to a nomad for longer than like 30 seconds? I mean, I don't know. Maybe she just kind of avoids them because of all the sort of tension, you know? Yeah. So it is a huge deal that um, the the kind of the big tension is Makusa fights really hard to keep the wizarding community out of uh, sight in New York. Uh, There's a group called the Second Salemers. They believe witches live among us. And, uh, you know, Second Salem, they want another kind of round of the witch trials. Yeah, and it should be noted, too, that a big part of the reason why in the States in particular there is such this heightened need for secrecy is because of the Salem witch trials. Yeah, England never had to deal with that. Or they dealt with that in like the Middle Ages, but it is... But it's a lot fresher here. Yes, totally. So that's sort of where we're at with... Um, we got off on a tangent, but Queenie, <laughs> Queenie and Tina are two witches living in this world. They both work for Makusa. It's my understanding that you either work for Makusa or you're like a jazz singer. Like those, are the, those are like the only two wizard jobs there um, are in I'll New York right now. I'll take the jazz singer option. Totally, totally. 
So Tina uh, was a demoted aura because she showed herself. Oh, this is why we're talking about it. Yeah. She showed herself to um, to a, a nomad, uh, and so she was demoted because that's a that's a no no. And then Queenie, a mind reader who uh, is just a lowly secretary. Like, she's a very, very powerful legilimens. <laughs> Sorry. Can't pronounce that one. But okay, I couldn't pronounce that spell last week, so we're good. But that's like a really hard... Um, J.K. Rowling has said about um, the L word uh, in the books that it's a very hard skill to master. And so she is... Queenie is a natural-born legilimens. And... So I'm surprised that um, her power is being underused to read minds. Uh, but maybe, well, maybe she but doesn't probably want to reveal not, it. Probably not for long. Probably not for long, yeah. Um, we all know this is Queenie's story, or that's what Mark and I are hoping <laughs> for. <laughs> well, so then here's the extra interesting part. Jacob Kowalski, nomad, baker, he gets pulled into the story, as you've seen. And there's really not much else to know about him other than what you see in the movie. He's, he's a just brand He's new reflecting character. us. He's the person seeing the world for the first time. Yeah. So he's pulled into this weird little foursome. And the question becomes, these are our four main characters. There's clearly romance between Queenie and Jacob. And we know, spoiler alert, Newt and Tina go on to get married. So we've got two couples and four more films. Will they be a part of it? Will Queen? It's one thing to say Newt Scamander is going to be integral in Grindelwald's story. But will Queenie and Jacob, you know, stick around or will they kind of fade off into the distance after movie two or three? I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, we they have to return for two. Well, do they? Is the cliffhanger of the, this film enough to think, oh, OK, they're going to strike up a relationship and that's that? I don't. I don't think so. But yeah. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Um. I mean, hmm. it's interesting. I think actually. I mean, we need to double check this, but I'm pretty sure like Dan Fogler is returning. Yeah. No. Like, there. I, I need. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but these, you don't waste time introducing think, these four characters to then say, nope, they're not going to be in it. But exactly, and how especially, do they in? I don't think that they would just leave it on the cliffhanger of like, does Jacob remember Queenie? <laughs> right. Which, by the way. He totally I does. think he does. Well, and I, he even went on to say himself that he thinks that he does. Yeah. Well, I think um, when she kisses him in the rain, the Obliviate rain, which I have all sorts of problems with, by the way. <laughs> uh, you have tainted the water supply for years. It, like, it, nobody, really nobody will be able to remember anything for, <laughs> forever. But Queenie and Jacob, um, you know, I think she must have done something when she kissed him. Uh, like, if she has the power to control read minds, she may have the power to like implant yeah maybe like um, manipulate them in some way yeah something strange um so yeah so we'll see that's a fun little duo but it they, will be, it, i'm shipping them but it's like you're gonna talk about trying to take down grindelwald maybe they chase him down across the country right how is a nomad supposed to be on this journey for this long they gotta eat he's a baker Oh, that's so he's <laughs> the equivalent of like the big tent they use in Goblet of Fire and Deathly Hallows. Like, exactly. He's just the tent. But character. I mean, it's an interesting point that you raise, though, because I'm just so curious about this being the entry point. Like, is this ultimately going to be Dumbledore and Grindelwald's story? Like, is that the crux of all of this? And if so, why not just start with that? Yeah. Well, so here's, I think, a next topic is. Um, Ilvermorny, right? Ilvermorny is the American Hogwarts and. All this year, there have been huge revelations about Ilvermorny, sort of as a setup to Pottermore. And Fantastic Beasts surprisingly does not get that much into it. You only get two mentions. There's, One, there's the scene 
where they're debating like which one's a better school? It's Hogwarts like a USC UCLA like yeah. beef kind of thing. It's super it's <laughs> like... super casual, but you don't really get any new information. No. We don't even find out what houses the girls are in. Yeah, they just acknowledge that it exists basically. Yeah. And then the other big link is the Thunderbird that Newt has traveled to New York to release in Arizona. So with that, Thunderbird is one of the houses, and here's where I think I get a little more sense of why Newt will be important in the Grindelwald story because clearly we're going to have to get to Ilvermorny at some point. And all four of the Ilvermorny um, houses are named after different beasts. That's not an accident. It's not just because Hogwarts was named after people. Like there, There's a whole reason to this. And so I think beasts are going to play a big part and – you know, maybe it's about Newt's expertise. You know, who knows? I I do think Grindelwald is searching for the Hallows. He's been obsessed with them since he was a teenager. We'll talk about the Elder Wand and whether he really already has it. But um, I like to think that we will go to Ilvermorny soon because Grindelwald will no doubt escape from the clutches of Makusa and try to find the Hallows, which maybe he thinks they're they're at Ilvermorny. So I, I do want to talk about the four houses of Ilvermorny. First is the Thunderbird. Thunderbirds are um, the house of Thunderbird at Ilvermorny is known for being like the soul, right? The words that are associated are soul and adventurers, um, which makes me think, okay, kind of Gryffindor. There's the Pukwudgie house, which is... Your house. Okay. No, it was my house, <laughs> and then I retook it on a different account and got a Thunderbird. So thank you. Mm. Pukwudgies are um, all about the heart. And they're known as uh, healers. And a Pukwudgie is like a short, gray, large-eared goblin. So, you know, heart and healers, I'm going to go ahead and say this is like the Hufflepuff, right? The Wampus is all about body. It's fast. It's strong. They're warriors. Um, it's kind of like a panther. And I think this is sort of Slytherin. The cunning ambition of Slytherin, I think, here is manifested as bodily strength. Yeah, you know? I can see that. It's kind of that same uh, thirst for power. A warrior, a panther, thirst, thirst for power is sort of very much the wampus way. <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> and then horned serpent, which is all about the mind. They're all the scholars. It's a horned serpent. I do think it's and interesting that's like Ravenclaw. that you and I are both Slytherin and Thunderbird. Oh, is that what you got on the first That's what line? I got, too. So I wonder how much... Like, I don't know necessarily that you're able to, like, line them up completely. Yeah. Because... But um, it seems like like Thunderbird, that was not the Hufflepuff house. No. Like, that's all I got to say. <laughs> you know? And, well, I mean, here's the, also the thing. It's like every Sorting Hat quiz is like, you know, what's your Patronus? Like, a lion, a snake, a book, or a friendship. Yeah. So, like, this... You know, I think Gryffindor is probably the adventure. Um, Slytherin is, is, is strength... And warriors, yeah. and then Ravenclaw is like mind and scholars, and Hufflepuff is healers and heart. So like, it does make you sense. only really get two other options. Yeah, yeah. For Anywho, sure. we'll be very excited to see Ilvermorny. I'm sure this is not the last we've seen of Frank the Thunderbird, and I'm interested to know how soon we get to Ilvermorny. I would like to think in the next one. Well, the next one is rumored to take place in Paris and the UK, and as we know, at the end of this film, Newt gets on a boat back to England. But let's talk a little bit about some theories here about why we sort of will find ourselves back in the States or at the very least find Newt back in with Tina. Here are, here are two things to talk about. The first is um, the Elder Wand. 
at the end of this film, Tina disarms Grindelwald, who is masquerading as Percival Graves, and she gets his wand. And in the screenplay, it's very specifically there that this happens. This isn't just like a casual, this isn't an accident. This is a definitive, Grindelwald expresses a look um, when Tina gets it. Uh, The book says, Graves' wand flies into Tina's hand. Graves looks around at them, a deep hatred in his eyes. Oh, that's interesting. So that wasn't that like dramatic, but it happened. And if we're to believe that Grindelwald already has the Elder Wand, which we believe because flashbacks in Deathly Hallows suggest that he was younger than he is now. He's 43 in this movie. He was much younger than that. Yeah, he's like a teenager, young adult at that point. He's in his like 20s. He's kind of left Dumbledore and gone on to... uh, find the wand. We should have talked about him way earlier. (laughs) So Grindelwald's going to go back to get the Elder Wand from Tina, is what you're saying. So if that is the Elder Wand, Tina now has it. We've seen how the allegiance to that stupid thing can go in a heartbeat, and how like 10 different people can think they have it at the same time. So Tina theoretically has the Elder Wand. And if Grindelwald knows that, then once Newt finds out that Grindelwald's after Tina, that could be a reason he comes back. Absolutely. We also know that he wants to give her a copy of his book, which is a small reason, but a reason. Totally. Just showing that there is that chemistry there. Oh, yeah. I wonder when he'll, when it'll be released. Maybe at the end. And then the other theory is that Newt and Grindelwald have some history. So the, the big scene we get between them is when Grindelwald, as Graves, is interrogating Newt. And um, brings up the question, why, what did Albus Dumbledore see in you? You know, why did he defend you against uh, being expelled? As we know, Grindelwald and Dumbledore share a deep history. So there's a lot of layers to just him. But um, Newt is told that his brother is like a war hero. And I'm wondering if maybe Grindelwald killed Newt's brother. Oh. And like they actually have a link. Maybe Newt and um, Grindelwald have a history. And one of the reasons is... is one of the reasons could be Lita Lestrange, who uh, is another new character we get in this film. She's played by actress Zoe Kravitz, so you know we're going to see her. Um, and David Yates actually confirmed that we will see her in Rolling 2. Yeah, she'll be Next in the, movie, she said. She'll be in the second movie. It's a little testy. They seem like they were lovers, and there was a little bit of a fallout. It, yeah, it did not strike me as just a friendship kind of thing. Yeah, so the question is... Newt obviously still harbors feelings for Lita Lestrange. Does the fact that she's a Lestrange play a part here yet? Has she turned towards darkness? Is that a reason they've strayed? Or was it like a lover's quarrel? Well, I think it's no accident that she's a Lestrange. Whether she's turned to the dark side or not, I mean, they wouldn't bring her into this unless that was going to kind yeah. of give some insight into the rise of dark magic. Yeah, I just don't know if uh, if Newt and Lita broke up because of darkness yet or if they will. I like to think Lita Lestrange could very well be the Bellatrix to Grindelwald. Grindelwald, as we see him rise, we're going to have to see him have a Bellatrix or a Wormtail. You know, we need a, a foil for him, a, a secondary, which makes me so sad that Graves is gone because, like, Graves would have been a great henchmen, you know. But Lita Lestrange, you have to remember, is not related to Bellatrix yet. Bellatrix Lestrange is actually Bellatrix Black, and she married into the Lestrange family. So Lita Lestrange is not Bellatrix's mom, as some people were quick to, like, shout from weird rooftops. (laughs) The best theory we have is that Lita is the 
what grandmother or aunt? Uh, she's like the mother of Rodolphus Lestrange, Possibly. who married Bellatrix. That timeline could work because Bellatrix is is in that middle generation. That's the only real kind of theory. But um, we're gonna need to consult the uh, Black Family Tapestry. Yeah, who knew that would come <laughs> in handy again? I thought that was just like let's burn the rest of that. Mm-mm. Yeah. So Lita Lestrange, really interesting um, girl who's gonna play a part here, and yeah, I think that'll be a fascinating little. Uh, addition of darkness here um, into this this story. I mean, you know I love me a baddie, especially when it's coming from a woman. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's so complex and interesting to me, but so that's may- a whole other podcast. So. Yeah, so maybe <laughs> maybe Lita brings uh, Newt back into Grindelwald's story or, you know, in the same way that he needs to go save uh, Tina. He well, and also, I mean, uh, what you were saying earlier about Ilvermorny, the houses being these creatures, I think that's a really good point, and I wonder if Maybe Dumbledore goes on to enlist Newt's help knowing what he's able to do. I mean, even in this movie, you see him using swooping evil mm. to help save Tina from that, like, creepy like death de- pond. Like, like death- what was yeah, that? Yeah, it was like a toilet of death memories. That was... That was very scary. That was very like a- scary and very... Very, like, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest meets the Ponceif. It just was uh, inhumane. Like, just yeah, do it. very strange. Just do it. But it also... Um, That's a good idea. Dumbledore might send Newt back. Like, he might be the one to say, like, girl, you got to go back there. I'm sending you on a ta- on a mission, just like he sent Harry get on a mission. Get that Mertlap messed stuff up. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so let's talk Grindelwald, because now we're we're way too far gone to not actually say yeah, we gotta get into what Grindelwald. the deal is. And Mark, you're kind of like the Grindelwald whisperer. I I am the Grindelwald <laughs> whisperer. No, um, but you know I've done my research on Grindelwald, and uh, you know if you listen to Deathly Hallows on the, this podcast, you know the story of Dumbledore. Well, it ties heavily into Grindelwald. So the abridged version of what you've got to know is that Grindelwald was a student at Durmstrang, and he was expelled for practicing dark magic. Everybody, like, everybody kind of practiced dark magic, but, like, he like, did it more than anyone. He was, like, real dark. Yeah. So he was expelled, and he goes to live in Godric's Hollow with his great aunt, Bathilda Bagshot, the magical historian, and later Snake Lady. He goes not only because, you know, he's kind of a pariah, but also because he has heard of the legend of the Deathly Hallows, and Godric's Hollow is where the Peverell brothers, um, who are the famous brothers in the Deathly Hallows legend, um, that's where they were from. So there are a couple reasons why he goes there. But he goes and he meets his new neighbor, Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore has graduated from Hogwarts, and the two of them strike up a friendship. Their main talking point is about muggle subservience to wizards. They both have these sort of ambitions for... um, It's not so much ethnic cleansing, but it's more about wizards not having to hide and exist at the whims of muggles. Grindelwald is, of course, much, much more arrogant in his beliefs than Dumbledore is. Dumbledore certainly believes in not having to hide, but Grindelwald believes in wizards, you know, magic over muggles Yeah, I think it's for, just the, a, for their own good. It's a superiority thing. It's not just that wizards shouldn't have to hide. It's that they're better than muggles. Yeah, and, and Grindelwald, there's some violence to him. So, uh, you know, even though they do have a fundamental difference, Dumbledore is still drinking the Kool-Aid back then. So they strike up a friendship, and eventually Dumbledore's brother Aberforth is really concerned about what these two plan to do together. And he confronts them, and it doesn't go that well. The three of them get in a duel, 
and it winds up killing the Dumbledore's little sister, Ariana, who I believe is 14 at the time. And um, she can't control her magic. Mark, I know you have some feelings about that. Yeah, so Ariana dies, Grindelwald flees, Dumbledore mourns, the two brothers don't talk. It kind of splits everything up. Here's the big thing about Ariana Dumbledore. Was she an Obscurus? An Obscurus is a parasitic dark force, basically like like the smoke monster on Lost. <laughs> um, and it's something that takes over a host, a, a young witch or wizard. It, it basically suppresses their magic. It's very much tied into emotions. It's a very weird, mysterious, uh, apparently very rare thing, even though we see like two of them in this film and like hear about so many more and it, it, it you can't control your magic and because you have no other way to you know vent it out it you explode every once in a while because you can't control it so we've always known ariana dumbledore couldn't control her magic and was maybe abused and now we know obscure obscurises latch on to young witches and wizards who are usually no more don't live past 10 years old Ariana was 14, and they are called Obscurioles, the hosts are the Obscurioles, and this might explain it, right? I mean, uh, my question for you now is in Fantastic Beasts, we see Grindelwald disguise his graves, sort of going to Credence, Barebone, played by Ezra Miller, um, this sort of second Salem nerve abused orphan, um, because he's basically looking for an Obscurus, and I wonder if you think that's what he was doing way back in the day with Ariana as yeah. well. Or if maybe uh, that's what sort of gave him insight into yeah. doing that later I, on. I don't think he was looking for Ariana, but I think all the Ariana stuff went down. He then knew what an Obscurus was, and he says he had some sort of vision of Credence, and that's what led him to America. I think the reason Grindelwald is in New York, disguised as Graves, is because he knows there's an Obscurus out there. He knows the power of it. Whether there's some other emotion here uh, some regret or some maybe there's a noble reason he's trying to find this obscurus like maybe to a to, noble reason for Grindelwald well maybe he's trying to like discover like harness the power and, and kind of win back Dumbledore that's not obviously that's not like true but I'm just saying like whatever reason he is looking for this obscurus whether for malicious reasons which are likely or not um, I think that's why he's here that is why he is disguised as Percival Graves, who is this top security orer at Makusa, you got to know about Graves. He is a real person. He it's not just some created, it's not some creation. He's a very cute person. Um, <laughs> and Grindelwald disguised himself through Polyjuice Potion. That means Graves was alive somewhere because Polyjuice Potion requires a continued source from from the living person. So does that mean then? Do you think that we could get more Colin Farrell later on? Similar to a Mad-Eye Moody situation? I was hoping, but um, producer David Heyman said he doubts it that we'll see Colin Farrell's character again, which is pretty sad. But, um, you know, he does confirm there was a real Graves and that Grindelwald used Polyjuice to take his place. Also, fun fact about Graves, uh, the whole history of Makuza, there were these 12 original ores, which I find interesting because there are lots of lists in this universe, like the Sacred 28 that we've talked about and all that. Um, He's a descendant of one of those original ores who are, like, super highly regarded. Ooh. Um, But one more quick thing about the Obscurus I want to talk about before we move on. Just visually, it reminded me so much of Death Eaters and the way that Mm -hmm. they, you know, disappear and everything. And I wonder if maybe 
down the line, either Grindelwald or Voldemort finds a way to harness that power to use for themselves. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. It, it visually, it does it does look a lot like that that sort of Death Eater weird, inexplicable Death Eater like, like apparating smoke. power. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also a theory out there that Obscurus's led to the first Dementors. Dementors are something that J.K. Rowling has always said. You know, we don't know where they come from. They kind of grow like a fungus out of nowhere. I wonder if you know we're talking about the 1920s. This is untapped power. I wonder if by the time we get to the um, 80s and 90s, the Ministry of Magic has figured out a way to harness the power of the Obscurus. Um, Maybe this is the crux of the rise of dark magic. So uh, just a couple more things about Grindelwald. Obviously, one of the big legends is that in 1945, Grindelwald is defeated in a duel by Dumbledore. So 1899 is when the whole Dumbledore-Ariana blowout happens. Grindelwald flees, and then theoretically, they don't see each other again until 1945. This movie picks up in 1926. Grindelwald is in his 40s, as is Dumbledore. This places Dumbledore back at Hogwarts as a transfiguration teacher. And Grindelwald is just rising. So we see in headlines in newspapers uh, in Fantastic Beasts that he's a threat. He has a presence, an international presence, too. And there's a manhunt for him. But I would say his followers are more fanatics than followers, if that makes sense. He doesn't have a Voldemort-level following yet. There's no army yet. But I think we will see him building one in the next few films. It's a work in progress, I think. Yeah, he's just sort of this this sort of soul rebel who is growing a following but hasn't kind of gotten it just yet. There's no mass army just yet. But the other question is Dumbledore and Grindelwald's relationship. We know Dumbledore is gay. J.K. Rowling has revealed that. And the question is, will we see... Yes, we'll see a young, hot, gay Dumbledore um, in this film series... But is Grindelwald going to reciprocate that love? And is this going to be a gay romance, which is super exciting? The only problem is that J.K. Rowling has gone on record years ago, I will say. So maybe she's going to renege on this. She said that she believes Grindelwald was a user and a narcissist. And she thinks someone like that would use the infatuation. I don't think that he would reciprocate in that way, although he would be as dazzled by Dumbledore as Dumbledore was by him because he would see in Dumbledore, blah, 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 someone as brilliant and talented and powerful. But Grindelwald, she says, I think he would take anything from Dumbledore to have him on his side. So Grindelwald is like the douchey straight friend that like (laughs) abuses the gay friend's um, crush and, you know, makes the gay friend sad. That's true. I mean, so... So much of the Potter series is about the power of love. And I would not be yeah. surprised if, let's say, she does kind of backtrack on that, if that really did play a factor. But also, I mean, maybe That's a great point. maybe he doesn't love Dumbledore back. But we've talked about, I mean, I think in one way or another, whether he loves Dumbledore or not, we are going to see love play out in some way. Because we've talked about, like, maternal love, like, devoted love, like, brotherly love, all that, all that mm. kind of stuff. So I think... At the very least, we will see the side of it from Dumbledore. Yeah, I would love to see some guy love. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I, I also think J.K. Rowling never sounded all that confident in these answers. That's a lot of I thinks, and I, he probably's. There's so, so much to flesh out. You can yeah. have an like a seed of an idea. But also, I mean, it's like what we were talking about last week about Ron and Hermione and whether they were really right for each other. She could be thinking one thing years in advance and then have yeah. time to... 
think on it some more and change your mind. Like we don't know what's going to happen. Totally. So it's not on the record. It's not on Pottermore. Yeah, I w- exactly. I w- Pottermore, the en- Encyclopedia of Pottermore. <laughs> Last thing is, of course, Johnny Depp, the casting of Johnny Depp. You like the casting. I think it's really cool. I saw the film a few weeks before it came out. The news about Johnny Depp was not out there. So when I saw the movie and I saw the reveal that and that it was Grindelwald and that it was Johnny Depp, like, I screamed. I was speechless. The, the theater I was in, like 15 people, we were speechless because I don't think it's so shocking that it's a reveal of Grindelwald as it is. Who's playing him. As it is, like. Johnny Depp is in this movie. Oh, my God. How did they keep this a secret? And then, of course, the news broke because we can't have nice things. No. And so everyone went in knowing Johnny Depp was in it. And I just wish people could have had that same experience I had of having no idea he was in it because, like, it really was such a a, a rude spoiler to go out into the world. I, I, I think it ruined a lot. I completely agree. I mean... I knew going into it. I saw right. it after you and toward the end of the movie when, you know, they're in the the subway, there's like kind of this moment of tension. I'm like, oh, it's going to happen. Like, this is when it's going right, to happen. Right. And I was just waiting for it to happen. So were you still surprised that it was Colin Farrell? Or did yes. you think? Okay. Yes. I was surprised that it was Colin Farrell. Even though they had that, that I don't haircut. know why I didn't think about this. I mean, how many times have we talked about Polyjuice Potion on this? Well, but we've, <laughs> like, said, we've said J.K. Rowling is usually pretty liberal about a plot twist. So I'm actually surprised this was this kind of was the way she did it because like Rita Skeeter being uh, an animagus um, and hearing things she shouldn't that was used once. You know uh, the Mad Eye Moody Barty Crouch plot of Polyjuice that was used just that kind of one yeah, time for that purpose at yeah. least. Although Polyjuice yeah. has been used a lot. But so. honestly though they had like kind of similar haircuts so I should have. Yeah the haircut off. was straight up like the giveaway. <laughs> or you were just like um, why does everybody have this haircut? Yeah. <laughs> also can we talk about Ezra Miller's haircut? Just kidding let's not talk about that haircut. <laughs> it's really unfortunate. Um, I'm into, I love him. I'm into Johnny Depp though I think it'll kind of give like a Heath Ledger Joker performance or maybe more of like a Jared Leto Joker performance. Well, I think it's going to be really interesting too because we've talked about the caliber of mostly British actors that we've seen in the original Potters Mm -hmm. and it's like I expect that it'll be the same here. Like what really kick-ass awesome American actors are we going to see throughout the next yeah, movies. well, Dumbledore's got to be a hot British guy. Again, I saw some uh, people pulling for Hugh Dancy in our comments earlier. <gasps> I would be really into I that. I would love that. I support that decision. Uh, I would not love Ewan McGregor. Um, I know people have been saying him, like, guess what? There are other British actors in their 40s who are not Ewan McGregor. I'm also very curious about the casting of Aberforth, too, because you have to sort of keep right? we're gonna have the to see... two in mind because they're brothers. So. And we're going to have to see – I don't think we'll see Aberforth at, in his 40s, but I think we'll see him in um, – because Dumbledore doesn't talk to him. I think we'll see him in flashbacks, though. But Grindelwald, Harry, there's a quote in the series when Harry has a vision of him. It says, um, or sees a picture of him, I can't remember. It says, quote, Harry thought he had a Fred and George-ish air of triumphant trickery about him. That's why Johnny Depp looks so crazy in the role, is he's got these weird colored contacts. I can't wait for a picture to leak online, because like, I need a real good in-depth look. Like a good, hard look. Yeah. And also, I had to see the film a, a second time because nobody understood the what Johnny Depp said the first time. No idea. Yeah. So he has two lines. The first one is, you think you can hold me, which is to um, Serafina Pickery, the president of Makusa. Whose hat game is so strong, by the way. Strong hat game. If you can call it a hat. It's more like a, like a, it's like a very Amy Winehouse beehive kind of thing. I'm sure there's <laughs> a real word for it, but 
Yeah, so obviously Makusa is not going to hold Grindelwald that long. Um, and two, he says to Newt, will we die just a little? Like, I know when you first wrote about this, and by the way, guys, if you haven't gotten all of this from the podcast, Mark wrote a really awesome explainer online, oh, so check you. it out. Well, now I'm, I'm, um, I'm saying all those quotes here. <laughs> but I know when you wrote that, you were sort of not sure what it meant. I mean, having more time away from it, do you have more theories or... It's interesting. I, somebody raised the question of Horcruxes, and I don't think that's that's true. Die just a little. I get it. I get the link. But no, we're not going to touch Horcruxes here. But that said, I, if we're touching Elder Wand again, it could true. be within the realm of possibility. True. Yes, you can't rule anything out. I think I, – I don't know. I, I think maybe it has something to do with um, – Grindelwald, for all his evil, is trying to do something noble. He doesn't want wizards to have to hide. And that's something that he truly thinks will benefit all of wizard kind. It, it's kind of like when Voldemort says in the Battle of Hogwarts, every drop of magical blood spills is a terrible waste. Grindelwald maybe believes, you know, Nude is the one who brought him down, right? Maybe Grindelwald says, will we die just a little as some sort of reflection on, you know, you're hurting us like you, you fighting me is hurting all of us um i don't know i think this is where jk rowling as screenwriter comes in you know is this like a i open at the close type thing where mm. we won't know until another movie or two what he meant i i don't I know think, i i think we'll get more insight into that as this continues i i honestly was pretty confused too when i first heard it um actually the second time i heard it because I also did not hear it the first time. <laughs> I came in like, Mark, <laughs> totally. what did he say? <laughs> totally. It's uh, it's so um, strange. But um, I wonder if maybe it has something to do with committing acts of terror for the greater good, like giving up a little bit of yourself for, you know. Yeah, like, will we die just a little? It's try- I, I tried to look up famous quotes. I went to Google Scholar to see if that was like a thing. Um, there's nothing really um, that jumps out as like a direct reference, but – I, I would love to know if you have if you have sort of a thought or some clarification on what you think Grindelwald meant, um, you know what obscure book or poet or Obscurus Latin phrase, book. yeah, <laughs> obscure Latin phrase uh, J.K. Rowling was referencing. Please tweet us. Also, speaking of obscurus, the original like imprint on Fantastic Beasts says it's from it's, obscurus books. Yeah, it's published by House of Obscurus, I believe. In association with Obscurious Books, 18A Diagon Alley, London. And that is no accident. If we've learned anything from J.K. Rowling, like, everything is connected. Yeah. One more theory to, to chat about. Fantastic Beasts is set in 1926. 1945, Dumbledore battles Grindelwald. That's 19 years of difference. Guess 19? what else is... Yeah, love that you're 19. <gasps> but guess what else is 19 in 1945? Tom Riddle. Tom Riddle was born in 1926, a month after this movie takes place. That is not an accident. And so I think we really need to consider the idea that Tom Riddle will play a part in this film. We have seen so much of his story, so it's hard to imagine we'll retread any territory. But also we just – we know – we know that Grindelwald is basically the precursor to Voldemort. So you have to imagine he comes in at some point. And even in like – Cursed Child, we see ourselves coming back to Voldemort as well. Like, I yeah. doubt that they're just going to ignore him. Totally. <laughs> I, and I mean, Tom Riddle being 19 years old and having similar ambitions and similar beliefs in wizard um, might as Grindelwald, this sort of rising star, it, it would be impossible for Riddle to not be one of his earliest followers. And I, that's something we that's something we don't know definitively didn't happen. 
You know, I so yeah. I, you know, I I wonder if there's a whole I wonder if Tom Riddle is the worm tail to Grindelwald at some point or or like the Colin Creevy. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it could go either way. But, you know, Dumbledore was a transfiguration teacher by 1945, by the end of this series, Tom Riddle has already killed his father's family. Like that was a few years prior. So we don't know. Like, did they meet? Did they meet before Voldemort ends up killing Grindelwald? Like years later for the Elder Wand. What is that relationship? It is not a coincidence that 1926 is the year Voldemort was born and the year that Fantastic Beasts begins. I also was just thinking about the significance of 19 because, of course, the epilogue in Hallows Part Two is 19 years later. Yeah, that's where Cursed Child picks up. Yeah, seven and 19 are two big numbers in in the Harry Potter world. So, and also, I just wonder. I mean, that's interesting what you brought up about. Tom having killed his father's family at that point. Like, I wonder how much flashbacks will play into the following films. Yeah. Between the Ariana's death and Tom's totally. father's family's deaths. It's, it's a lot it's, to marinate. It's really interesting. <laughs> and I will say the, the whole Johnny Depp reveal gave me such belief of, it gave me such confidence of the next four movies. You know, when J.K. Rowling announced that it was going to be five instead of three, I know everybody kind of collectively thought, what? Like, that sounds like a lot. This is a tiny little textbook with no plot. What What the hell could this possibly mean? It, when you see Grindelwald at the end, I think you essentially deem the entire first movie complete exposition. Yeah, you know, for sure. Like, truly nothing happens. Newt loses some stuff and then gets it back. Um, like that, that's literally it. Yeah. Um, and a politician is killed. Not that anybody really cares, but whatever. Um Bye. So, yeah, I'm excited for the next four films. But, uh, Molly, I realize... We all, haven't talked about... We haven't talked about the actual the beasts. damn beasts. <laughs> so, okay. Fantastic beasts and where to find them. You want to know where to find them? Newt's case. At this point in wizarding history, nobody really trusts beasts. This is kind of like in How to Train Your Dragon when, like, nobody knows you can actually ride them. Like, Newt <laughs> is, like, very much um, alone in believing magical creatures actually you know what i i lied earlier in the podcast when i said oh he probably loved ma- care magical creatures um there was definitely not a care magical creatures class at this time when newt was in school mm. there's just no way that just did not exist because magical creatures newt wrote the book on them like literally he he <laughs> went around the world to write this book about how to care for them and newt at one point says humans are the cruelest of all so there's like some like tragedy here he's traveled the world picking up beasts uh, we have to believe that he's at some point run into some antagonism in defending wizards from uh, defending creatures from from wizards. But oh, absolutely! I mean, you you see that so much in this. Just the, how Graves is, and obviously there are other motives here, but Graves and even most of Makuza are quick to assume that the death of that politician that you just mentioned was the result of what was in his case. And the Obscurus in particular. Right, right. It's like, how much did Newt change the world, and how much will we see in, in this film? Um, but should we talk about some of these beasts? Let's talk about some of these beasts in this, like, giant extension charm suitcase, which I will say was pretty damn magical. Oh, uh, that was sick. Yeah. First off, on the count of three, say what, whatever you're thinking. Okay. One, One two, two, three. three. Niffler. Niffler. Yeah! yeah, girl. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> if you're like, bow chuckle? I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, we saw a different movie. I love me a Niffler. Oh, the Niffler was so... I will be honest, at the beginning, I thought, what the hell is this thing? 
Like, you're not that cute. And then, it, literally, a minute later, I was like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. Um, I wish that I had me a little niffler to help out at Christmas. I feel like you know? I I feel like I kind of am a niffler. Do you know what I mean? Like, I would like to retake <laughs> my Patronus I mean, Patronus we were just test. talking about, like, Accio Mansion, so. Yeah. So, nifflers <laughs> are these, like, weird little creatures. Kind of look like little platypuses. Platypi? Platy- um, yeah. That. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> that um love shiny things. Yeah. And they've got this, like, endless pouch, which I love. It's kind of like a. Like a ghetto kangaroo, um, and they're burrowing creatures, gentle and affectionate, but don't keep them in your house because they can be destructive. Yeah, it's, um, and they live in layers up to twenty feet underground. Oh, it's just like it's super cute, and what a great little character! It doesn't say a word, doesn't have to. I especially love the jewelry store scene. Oh, when he like when he's he like freezing with the that, um, jewelry all over him. That was the moment I fell in love with the Niffler, hundred percent. When I'm he's in posing love with the Niffler. <laughs> That was good. That's our new theme song. Um, oh, speaking of theme songs, oh, I wanted to give a shout out to like how amazing the theme song is whenever people have been saying that the music is not that great in this film. I disagree. James Newton Howard composed this music. And the theme song, when they're like trying to chase down some of the beasts, it's something that we hear over and over again. And I just feel like it didn't get enough love. But like, yeah, no, the like kind of New York upbeat one. Yeah, it's this, it's this one. Wait for it. Right? It's super fun. Like Indiana Jones, you know? All I'm saying is, like, when it comes to scores, something I have not told you before, but it's my deep, dark Harry Potter confession. Like, I love me an emotive score. I listen to Dumbledore's Farewell. Emotive score is my drag name, actually. On repeat for an hour and a half. It's on YouTube. You can find it. It's super embarrassing, but that's what I do work to. Hello, I listen to Courtyard Apocalypse. Like, the worst (laughs) song you can listen to. (laughs) Like, that's, like, the song everybody dies to. Poor Lavender Brown. But... I love me an emotive score, and I really like that. I think it's super fun. Right? Whenever they were, like, trying to, like, catch a dragon bird in a teacup or, like, run across Central Park, you know, zoo, I was like, oh, my God, this song is so good. So, yeah, I love the score. Um, Okay. So So we've talked about Thunderbirds a little bit, obviously a big mm -hmm. part of this. But other one I need to give a shout-out to, don't love as much as the Niffler, but still very cute, Mm -hmm. the Botruckle. Botruckle. It's kind of like – such a cute relationship with Newt. Yeah. I mean, a little clingy. Stage five clinger. But, (laughs) you know, it's like a praying mantis plus walking stick plus, like, very much like David Hyde Pierce, you know. (laughs) And I'm not just saying that because he played a walking stick in A Bug's Life. (laughs) Although that's probably the – the subconscious. Botruckles are actually known as tree guardians made out of bark and twigs. Yeah. With two little eyes and, and they're the tre- maximum of eight inches. And the tree oh good. That's good. And the trees that they um guard are all trees that you can make wands out of. Yes, and that's something that'll come into play in a little bit. Is it? Oh. Oh, Molly <laughs> Molly's gonna quiz me on beasts, apparently. And I came up with a hard quiz for Mark, but a couple more to talk about. Um the demiguys, which is that sort of Monkey, invisible monkey. Yeah, it's like that's the. This is like a weird version of Legend of the Hidden Temple. Like <laughs> invisible silver monkeys. Um, yeah, that. What? What's that deal? It's like can see the future, but it's also super sweet and it goes invisible. It's so like that's fun. Also, yeah. a little feminine. Not gonna lie, uh, you know, when I was carrying the purse through Macy's. Look, I'm just saying. But if why I was, does that have to be feminine? If Mark? I was an invisible, well, it's 2016, right? <laughs> if I was an invisible monkey, girl, you know, I would go to Macy's first. Oh, for sure. He's um, demiguys. They're peaceful herbivores. Wow. Herbivores. Let's just skip this. Part. <laughs> um, there's the Akami. 
The Akami is like a weird dragon bird it's snake like a, thing. It's like a snake bird. Yeah. And it can expand um, in size. Yeah. It can get up to... It, well, in the book, it says that it can grow up to 15 feet, but in the movie, it <laughs> looks a lot bigger than Yeah, that. the scale is very much like um, teacup to Macy's. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, that's basically <laughs> what it is. Although, when Newt sees them in the suitcase, um, the Akamis are all just kind of sitting there, like, in this little nest. Like, is, I, it, is it when they're hungry they expand or something? Or when they're scared? I don't know that we get an explanation for why. I mean, maybe because that's more their, like, natural habitat. Right. God something. knows there's a lot of explanation we do not get about all of these beasts. Yeah, I got lots of questions, like, about erumpments. Erumpents, yeah. Erumpents? Kind of like the rhino. Though that was, I think that it's was like so a cute. big-ass rhino. Yeah, it's like a rhino elephant that has, like, a horn of, like, goo. Also, it can swim on, like... How, that thing, how the hell did that thing get like underwater and then no manage to get all the way up to Central Park Zoo without any questions? Also, who loves Jacob more, the Arumpent or Queenie? Ooh, the Arumpent for sure. That was a great scene. That was like, <laughs> I was like a giddy child clapping during that scene. Last one I want to highlight is the swooping evil that we talked about a little yes. bit earlier. It's like a large butterfly like creature um, that its venom is used to basically obliviate people that's the secret to obliviating at the end of the film which i know you have issues with yeah yes and i've made those clear um i i don't understand the logistics of the swooping evil i'm not gonna lie like it, like newt played with it like it was a yo-yo like th- it's like this weird bird yo-yo and yeah, like you care for magical creatures and you're treating it yeah, as a yo-yo newt was just like boom got the swooping evil Ooh, boom like it, it was very strange it was like an arcade game where you like press a and he shoots a swooping evil at you um also fun name cute name but um yeah, so swooping evils were there. What else was there? There was a Mertlap, which was disgusting, mm-hmm. and I don't want to talk about it ever nope. again. It's horrible. There was the Billywig, which was like the beetle that nobody really cared about. Mm. Um, and also, like, Newt never really captured it, did he? No, but he probably was like, eh. eh it's a he beetle. Can, he can blend in. It's fine. Even though when uh, apparently when a Billywig stings you, um, you levitate and then start giggling. <laughs> we did not talk about the giggle water, by the way, and that oh, was yeah. delightful. That was great. Or the fact that the house elves were in clothes. Not my house elves. I thought of you when no, I saw the house no elves. No free house elves. Did you? <laughs> oh, because I hate Dobby, not because, like, I remind you of it. Okay. <laughs> no, no, the latter. <laughs> <laughs> and then there were also a couple of weird ones we didn't really get to talk about, but just see. You know, there was, like, the tiger puffer thing inside the, the suitcase, which was a new do, apparently. That's a weird name. Mm. There were, like, the weird dinosaur things that Newt apparently had, like, the last surviving, oh, yeah. you know, Hair and the head off. He's spring. basically repopulating them. Yeah, so those are grap horns. Which is interesting, too, because there's a ban against the breeding of magical creatures, but I forget what year that comes into play. Yeah. Um, there's there's a pink bird called a swooper. <laughs> and then there's, like, those big things Jacob feeds, like, that have the eyes on top of their heads. They're oh, called, they were cute. They were cute. They're they were kind of like meerkats. Yes, they're called moon calves, which is... A, similar. Very, very ish. similar. Quite similar. Um, and then there's the Obscurus, which I don't want to talk about again. So, well, Molly, you have a game for me. I have a game, and it's a fill-in-the-blank game. Oh, yeah, girl. And it's going to be about some of these creatures we were just talking about. So I'll I'll tell you when the blank is, and you tell me what should go in there. And okay. these are lines that I've pulled out from the textbook. So I hope you studied. I definitely have not picked up that book in years. <laughs> but, uh, yes, bring it on. Okay. Nifflers are often kept by blank to burrow deep into the earth for treasure. Um... Malfoys. <laughs> That's honestly not a bad guess because they're <laughs> burrowing for glittery things. It's goblins. 
Ooh, okay, good call. Mm-hmm. Good call, cool. Mm-hmm. This one's a long one, but I think the payoff is worth it. The bow truckle, which eats insects, is a peaceable and intensely shy creature. But if the tree in which it lives is threatened, it has been known to leap down upon the woodcutter or tree surgeon attempting to harm its home and blank. Is it a one word blank or is no, it like a phrase? <laughs> it's like a phrase. It's many? Oh, God. Um, so how does a bow truckle basically kill its prey? Um, all right. It, it like... Um, like goes into the ear canal and like eats out the brain from the inside. Okay, that's also not a bad guess. <laughs> it's gouged their eyes with its long, sharp fingers. Oh my god! But little Pickett did that. Yeah. Oh no, yep. that's awful. But an offering of wood lice will placate the bro- bow truckle long enough to let a witch or wizard remove wandwood from its tree. So I can that's find how some... Ollivander saved his eyes. Yeah, I can find some wood lice. I know <laughs> I know a couple guys who have, have too much He's to been spare. waiting for someone to ask for wood lice, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Demogai's pelts are highly valued as their hair may be spun into blank. Thread. No. Oh. Think about what they're able to do. <gasps> Invisibility cloaks. Yep. Ooh. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, um, Death, you got served. Your cloak isn't the yeah. only value of invisibility out there. Do we think the invisibility cloak was made with, like, 100% real demiguy's cloth? Also, are there, like, knockoff invisibility cloaks that you see on the street? That oh, are like, for sure. Canal oh, Street, yeah. like, you'll find one down Yeah, like, oh, yeah, the, yeah, this is a real invisibility cloak. And, like, <laughs> you put it on, it, like, only cuts, like, half of you right. out of the picture. Anyways, oh, go on. Okay. <laughs> The Akami is aggressive to all who approach it, particular in defense of its eggs, whose shells are made of the blank. Softest silver. Yeah. Purest, softest silver. Yeah. I remember. remember. I read that, yeah. Yeah. And then the last one, and this is a two-parter. Ooh. The Arumpent's horn can pierce everything from blank to blank and contains a deadly fluid, which will cause whatever is injected with it to blank. The deadly fluid causes anything to explode. Okay. And what was the first part? It it can pierce its horn can pierce everything from blank to blank. Oh, so these are just like two nouns that exist in the world <laughs> that like the arumpent can pierce. Okay, great. It can pierce, I don't know, Flan and Ginny Weasley. Probably, but what was written was skin to metal. Okay. Oh, I'm kinda well no, I'm not close at all. <laughs> and fun fact, um, Numbers are down for male arumpents because they will cause each other to explode during mating season. Whoa. Wait. Male arumpents? Like if they're fighting over a female? (gasps) Oh. They'll... But let's be real. Like the mating itself should mean that all the rumpets are dead. Like Jacob narrowly escaped explosion. Yeah. I've known a few rumpents in my day. I won't lie. (laughs) Oh well, that was fun. I didn't. Reunion. I didn't fail. I mean, I I got nothing right. But you that, did a lot better though than I thought. Thank you. That's yeah, very kind. you're welcome. That's um that that gets me through the day. But yeah, I'm sure we'll see so many more creatures going forward. Yeah. So Molly, what are your final thoughts? Uh, Fantastic Beast. Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you do you want some more of it? I I wouldn't go so far as to say that I love it. I did like it, and I think it's laid a lot of interesting groundwork. I think the thing for me is. I'm most curious about Dumbledore, Grindelwald, that whole backstory. And so I'm just I'm just very curious about Newt, Tina, Jacob, and Queenie as being the entry point. But I, they have to factor in some way or else they wouldn't be that entry point. You totally. Know? I'm in complete agreement with you. I'm also really excited to hopefully see Ilvermorny. 
Um, I would love to get back to a school. Um, it, it would just make me happy to be back at a school uh, in the wizarding world and see what that's all about. Um, I would like to just meet more wizards. You know, totally. I didn't get enough wizards and I want more wizards. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what other characters um, will be introduced. We've got Dumbledore. We've got Lita Lestrange. But I'm wondering who have we not heard of yet? And, and who's going to come back? Who's going to come back? Will we see young McGonagall uh, at all? That's all I want. Yep. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm with it. And um, with that, I think it's time to kick it over to our interview. Um, so at EW's Pop Fest uh, a few weeks ago, I chatted with Eddie Redmayne and Catherine Waterston about the film. I couldn't get real into spoiler territory because nobody had seen it yet. But um, I hope you enjoy Guys, so being here in front of all these fans, um, and you guys went to Comic-Con this summer, you must have known you were entering a really cool world in joining the Wizarding World, but was there a moment during shooting when you thought, this is not like any other movie, this is, this is a, a J.K. Rowling Wizarding World movie? Did that happen during production? Every day. <laughs> I mean, it was insane. we get to work, finish a scene, starting a new scene, and there'd be a whole new set built that we hadn't seen before that somebody, you know, I mean, a massive crew of people had been working on for weeks and weeks. And then you'd go into those sets and there'd be rows and rows of, let's just say, books in one place. And you open the books and there, there's stuff inside them. Every little detail had been considered. And so it kind of felt like being in a... J.K. Rowling Museum or something that was just for us. I, the, 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 the amazing thing also was this idea that all those things that I loved in the Potter films were all those tiny magical things, the moving newspapers. The, um, but when you got to turn up on set and set in the 1920s, you saw the J.K. Rowling equivalent in the 1920s. So I remember one day we were shooting in Makusa and all these wizards are there getting kind of ready for work or doing things. And there was like this shoe shine. You know how in the 1920s you'd have like in the subways, you'd have the, the, the shoe shine things. And here you had one shiners and it was this amazing feather boa thing. And it was just working all day doing its thing. And it was those small intricate details that was like all those things you love about J.K. Rowling. But back in the 20s, it was cool. What would you say is the stranger shift for us seeing the wizarding world again? Is it the fact that it's in New York City, or the fact that it's in the 1920s? What is sort of the bigger woe of it all? That's a tough call. <laughs> but I think America, because you just, none of us knew that there was more of this world beyond the UK. And I feel like this introduction makes you consider the whole world, magic all around the world in a way that we haven't really seen before. And there are just like in our world, there are different laws and rules and so much to discover. But then the costumes are really cool. <laughs> and there's old cars and all the details of the period and even like uh, the language of it. You know, my Queenie, the girl, um, uh, my sister in the film, she uses great slang from the period and stuff that's really cool to hear. and. Uh, it's a toss-up. It toss-up. But something also about that age of like it being jazz, it being quite a sort of sexy period. There was a load of 
like you had all the prohibition stuff. It kind of there were gangsters. It plays into and, and, and J.K. Rowling does that thing of taking that context and really finding every nuance within it. So, um, well, I do want to ask. Um, you know, Newt is a Hogwarts man. Tina is an American Ilvermorny girl. Not to give too much away, but what do we sort of learn as we meet these characters about what those core differences are between being a young witcher wizard in America and being a young witcher wizard in England? What are the, is the difference there? Well, I think the biggest distinction is actually the way that the um, witches and wizards interact with the muggles, or as we call them, nomadges in America, because we're forbidden to engage with them at all. We were persecuted during the very real Salem witch trials and then went into hiding. So um, there's just a lot more secrecy around witchcraft in America. And, and so when, when Newt shows up, he's very casual about things that we are very, very strict about. So but I feel like R- R- Newt doesn't really care about rules that much anyway. No, he doesn't. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite shocking to me. It really irks her. <laughs> And what? stresses me out a bit, but also I find him really charming and engaging, so, you know. So I think we all know, I mean, it's canon. Spoiler alert, they get together. Keep I mean, the secrets. Keep the secrets. Keep the secrets. But it is, I mean, it is known that your characters do end up married in an eventual, eventual future. Eventually. So how does that affect the slow dance you do um, as actors playing a romance, playing the beginning of a romance together on screen? One of the things that I loved about this script when I when I first read it is, I think J.K. Rowling had always seen it as as telling a, a sort of larger story, um, but the the film is its own thing, and actually the relationships that you see arrive in the film they stand together as one, as as one sort of whole piece. But what I love is that the relationship starts kind of. We're just about, yeah. It's not love at first sight, put it that way. Maybe there's a bit of chemistry at first sight, but it's yeah. quite, um, quite combative. And uh, but but what was lovely was to play a slow build, like to be able to play this kind of. Th- th- these characters are thrown into a world, this quartet together, and they're all outsiders in some ways, and yet they have really heroic qualities within them. So it was kind of lovely for us to not have to rush that and to be able to play it. Yeah, and you know the audience gets to be in on it because you know that eventually these two people end up together. So you can see and look for when they start to notice each other, you know what I mean? Because you're in on it in a way that I think is really fun. And I feel like there's a lot in this movie of us kind of like, oh, that tragic stuff where you look at someone and they're not looking at you and then you look away and then they look at you. And so there's like all of that sort of stuff going on. A little more about Tina. Uh, When we meet her, um, she is an Auror, although maybe not what she used to be. Um, Yeah, she's been demoted. She's had a slap on the wrists. What did you love about kind of where we will see her, but especially where she starts out? What, What struck you about her kind of beginning of her arc there? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the lovely things that I think Newt and Tina have in common is they're both really passionate about their work and their interests and um, it's where they kind of come alive so for her to have the thing that the place where she's most comfortable taken from her is very uncomfortable for her and so she she wants to be a great aura but she also really wants to get back in in the swing of things because that's where she feels the best so she's really striving to kind of undo the damage she's done but uh, she she has so much heart, and uh, sometimes even 
there are situations that compel her to maybe bend or break the rules, even though all she wants is to get back in good graces at work. So she's kind of got this internal struggle going on there. But what's also amazing in the course of the film is that because I think that Newt sees her potential and, and uh, kind of in encourages her to get back um, into doing some pretty badass witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing to have a first scene just be with another actor, find your chemistry, but you add in a creature. Um, how was your creature handling? How did, what was that learning curve like? Do you know what was amazing is I thought when you do a film like this of this scale that they kind of tell you how to do it. And what was wonderful about David Yates, the director, is I had like three or four months started working on it before we started filming and he was like what you know you tell me what you need and so in the end we had all these different things like with with the Mertlap there we were there was actually this kind of really disgusting silicony sort of um, anemone like thing that we got to sort of fiddle with which they then anim animated it looked a, a lot like the real thing it, it was really gross yeah really gross so it and wasn't a tennis ball it wasn't a tennis ball but then it, sporadically there was a tennis ball occasionally and um but then also puppeteers you know warhorse that amazing play that was on broadway um that the, some of the guys who helped make those puppets did that for some of the bigger puppets but yeah we it was it was one it kind of varied day to day one you really had there they you worked it in the scene like it was that you you grabbed it right you were really holding up that thing and kind of shaking it around and it was so much fun i mean there were parts <laughs> i feel like when i when it climbed when it came at me i i didn't have anything there i just had to spaz out but then you you did he did he's such he's so good with the beasts like he did this amazing thing like he was wrestling it into the yeah, he's so talented. <laughs> well, I, I also want to know a little bit about um, your wandry. If wand, like wandry, wa wandry. Wand good or, word. Uh, I, I do don't know if that's the right. Stealing that? <laughs> yeah, I, Webster, don't come after me. Um, what would what advice would you give yourself on your first day of wand rehearsal, knowing what you know now about how how to do it? Oh, that's good. I think probably to relax. Yeah, I was going to say maybe drink something first. It's probably. It was like, it, it had been, I hadn't realized it, but subconsciously it had been like 33 years of drum roll to that moment. And so um, the, the, the nerves were pretty high when I picked up that one. But actually, it was so disastrous when I first picked it up. That, and this was someone who loved magic as a kid. So I did used to like walk around with a one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know this. <laughs> Um, but I would say to myself, relax a bit. But then we got quite into it. We went to these wand work sessions, all of us. It was really funny. Yeah, I felt like a real jerk when I first picked up the wand. I was so embarrassed because I just, the, there was this wonderful woman that worked with us, a kind of movement teacher. And she, she said, you know, just point your wand at that cup and imagine that you can slide it across the table. And... I kind of, I was afraid just even to lift it up. I just, I felt goofy with the wand. I made them make my wand heavier so that I could, so it felt more substantial. That helps. The other thing I would tell myself is do what I then did a couple of days later after my catastrophic first day, which is go and watch what Dan and Rupert and Emma did and, and steal Fiennes, their best bits. Like Rafe did wonderful. Yeah. 
And this, do you remember when Rafe no, was all like talking that? about this on set? We're such uh, nerds. Like, yeah, but did you see the way he lifted it up like that? <laughs> and then he's looking, and then it's a blue light shining out of, you know. It, did you guys <laughs> get to? Uh, I know you tell a story uh, where you, you know you had met Rafe, and he spoke about spoke the praises of David Yates as a yeah. director. Um, did you guys get to meet others in the kind of the Harry Potter cast, that whole giant cast, to sort of a, a little bit of a passing of a torch, a little advice here and there? Um, I mean, when we were in the thick of mating, making it, I didn't actually, and I know some of the, you know, I've worked with Emma, and I, I've worked with quite a few of the actors who are in it um, in the Potter films, uh, and I'm yet to have a, a proper debrief with them. No, but I met Ray Fiennes just before we started filming, and he was just singing David Yates, our director's praise, because the films, they're, s they're like, when you're directing one of these films, it's like being the captain of some huge tanker, because there are so many different departments, and, and yet through all of that chaos, he's so specific and sees what the actors are doing. So, he, he, and, and Rafe pointed that out early. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the other two in your, your quartet. Tina has a sister named Queenie, played by Alison Sudol. And Newt has a buddy. He's, he's got a friend. Uh, got a friend, just the one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jacob Kowalski, played by Dan Fogler. It's one thing to find chemistry between you two with your romance, etc., Tell me a little bit, was there a moment on set when, Catherine, you felt like you and Allison were connecting as sisters and you felt like, Eddie felt like you and Dan were connecting as kind of buddies? Was, was there a you moment? Know, for me, it was actually in the audition. We had done a couple days of different pairings with different people and it was really nerve-wracking. And uh, then they brought us in, me and Allison, and they said, okay, now we're just going to do an improv, um, just sit on that couch like you're hanging out at home, your sisters. And, and so we were sitting on the couch and uh, we, our, our parents are dead in the movie and something came up where we were talking about boys. And then I, I, I said that I missed mom and I got kind of verklempt. And then uh, she started sort of braiding my hair and then I don't know, something happened because she's a legilimens in the movie and so she can read my mind and I always thought there is something about sisters that's kind of like that. They often kind of know what you're thinking before you're thinking it or something and I just had this feeling that she knew that I had this crush on this guy and I just said suddenly, stop reading my mind, you know, this is so annoying and it just was like something in that moment and she kind of, she felt bad but she smiled at me and we like really connected in that moment and it felt, I don't know, it sounds so dopey saying this but it felt really genuine and like easy with her and then of course it was like three weeks where I was just panicking that they were gonna, you know, that maybe they wouldn't hire both of us. <laughs> I mean, obviously I was worried they wouldn't hire me, but I was also worried they wouldn't hire her because I just loved that moment and the connection we had there. Um, Dan Fogler. <laughs> Did Dan Fogler read your mind? Oh my God. I love Dan Fogler. Um, Dan is one of the warmest people and he, as you were saying, is one of the first sort of muggles that really gets fully brought into to J.K. Rowling's world and the guy brings such heart to the, the center of this film. He's in some ways the eyes through which you kind of see you're introduced to Newt's world and, um, and certainly in the case. And as an actor, like I, so I have played real people in the past few films I've done and so when I was playing this character, even though he wasn't real, I sort of did, was doing all this sort of like research and stuff and, and Dan is just like 
so free and he's like what you want me to see the beast where is it oh what you know, like, is that, and he's just like and it's so brilliant and so real that he like he brought me out of myself and basically made me stop being quite so sort of I don't know, like, you, you know, he, he, he really uh, released me. And I think that's in what kind of happens in the film is these guys, again, it's not an easy relationship to begin with. Um, Newt doesn't really have easy relationships to begin with. But by the end, he's, he's made a, a great pal. And, and, um, and, and more than that, actually, the four of us, I remember when we did our first read-through, the four of us, we were at Leavesden in London, right next to the Potter world. You know, as you drive up to it, you're just swimming in all of that memory of those films and and the Warner Brothers studios were there and the four of us did this read through and we were kind of left alone because quite often on film sets you then have lots of people buzzing around and the four of us were just walking through Leavesden and we barely knew each other but it was this kind of deep breath moment I don't think any of us will ever forget and it really felt like a bonding moment. Catherine do you remember that? No I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) I just was like, take me to my trailer. I don't want to talk to any of these people. (laughs) No, yeah, it was an amazing moment. Because really, it was truly, out of six-plus months of shooting, the only time ever that we were at the studio where we weren't picked up in separate cars and taken around because they, you know, want to make sure they don't lose any of us (laughs) when no one wanders off or anything. It was the one time all of the drivers forgot to come get us, so we got to go for a walk together. And it was amazing because it was the first day and we were looking at it all ahead and I think Eddie said something like, well, guys, are you ready for this? You know, and all of us were like, hell no, this is terrifying. (laughs) But also just so wonderfully exciting and everything. Yeah. Inside Newt's case, I imagine what we just saw was such a good example of a description that reads one way on a page uh, in J.K. Rowling's words and then takes on such a new life on screen. I want to ask a little bit about her as a screenwriter. What sort of struck you about the descriptions that she might give for something like that scene and just sort of how it kind of blows you away in a sense? Well, I think the two things there. Firstly, the script when you read it, like when you read quite a lot of scripts, quite often it's just the dialogue that plays the piece. One of the most wonderful things about reading the script for Fantastic Beasts is all the things in between. The descriptions are so full and so alive and totally hypnotic that like the, the experience of reading the script was pr- pretty mind-blowing um so all of that details in there but at the same time she allows you to go and bring your own your own things to it so in that scene for example like i'd um gone and met this this dude who tracks creatures for for a living and he took me into this forest and he showed me all these like grasses and herbs that were like antidotes to if you get stung by this you can do that and originally in the film it was you just put pills in it and then I said well this guy does all this stuff with like rubbing herbs together and putting spit in it because apparently and she was and they were like great use it like and so there's a sort of wonderful thing by which you're allowed she's written it all and it's all but you she also allows you a freedom to play within it. It's an interesting idea. You guys are developing your own characters, but she still holds the cards. She knows things that you don't know yet about what's going to happen. So uh, were there ever conversations you had where you said, JK, Joe, like, slip, slip me a detail. Fill in a blank. Did she ever fill in some blanks for you? Well, you know, she came to set one day. It was the first time I met her. And we all kind of, like, we were possessed, walked away from whatever it was we were doing and just kind of went right up to her and started staring at her. We, like, completely surrounded her, the four of us. And um, I wanted to ask her loads of things, but I was scared to. And we, so we sort of chatted, and she said she was so happy it was all happening, and we all just kind of, like, 
nodded and smiled and drooled and like, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And then what happened was that she, she we, we were chatting and stuff and she couldn't take it anymore. Like she couldn't keep quiet. She couldn't keep the secrets. We didn't ask. I don't think we. I don't think we initiated it. She said, "Okay, well, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but that's just what's one thing." And then she'd just go into it. And she gave us all some really exciting details about the next film. But like, I don't know. I mean, when no. she said we were doing five, that was news to us too. Genuinely, we didn't yeah. know. So there's so much that we're not privy to. I, I was going to ask, you know, well, yeah, was was that a shock to you? And could you sort of see, now that you know it's not just three films, but five, minimum, maybe, who knows? Could you maybe now, knowing what you know about this, the first film, sort of see the five now? Could you kind of think through two and two through five and think, oh, yeah, I can, maybe I have my guesses about about why, about why it was it was bumped up? Um, well, the thing is, is that it, it's her imagination. She has such a passion for it and a specific story that she wants to tell. And we get glimpses into that. And as Catherine said, it's like insanely exhilarating w w when that happens. But I think, you know, Fantastic Beasts, that the title and Newt and his creatures are a way into this world. But there's a much bigger story here about good versus evil that she wants to tell. And it's it's... You haven't seen much of it in the trailers and the clips of the film, but it's really at the core of the story that, that, that she's telling, and it has an epic, epic quality to it in which I think Newt's case and then these four creatures become the conduit into it. So I do, do see that it's a macro story that could take more time. Now, to the point of um, keeping the secrets, uh, you guys are so such pros at not letting the secrets uh, slip through. Has anybody, have like, friends and family tried to... Uh, like, who's the worst? <laughs> I think the hardest thing for me is just keeping my own mouth shut. You know, uh, you get excited and you want to tell people what's going on at work and everything. Um, so it's not so much that people have been trying to trick me into accidentally saying things. It's just that I am getting dangerously yeah. close to revealing things all the time. Like, there are some serious secrets as well. That's the <laughs> other thing. There are, like, things There's that... a big secret. <laughs> at least one. But, but it's like, Catherine, how are you? And you're like, oh, I, I can't, I can't. It was easier when we weren't allowed to say anything. There was like a whole period when we were making the film when it was like, oh, sorry, I can't say anything. And now we're like sort of allowed to say bits and Something. pieces. And then yeah. accidentally someone will release some incredibly candid piece of informa information and we get a slap wrist. Now, uh, who in the cast would you say was the biggest Harry Potter geek? No question. There is a guy so, you might know called Ezra Miller. <laughs> Ezra Miller, everybody? <laughs> Who we adore, and I think, like in life, is one of the most whimsical wizard-like people. And he, he was definitely on set the guy who had all the miscellany and detail of knowledge of everything Potter-wise. If there was anything that you ne you needed to go back and reference in the books, you basically just went to Ezra. Page twenty-seven, midway down. <laughs> He's just perfect. He's just a perfect person. What, was he, like, geeking out every single day? Just yeah, I don't think he... I mean, I think he got a call from his agent for this, going, so they want to, like... So J.K. wrote... And he was like, I'm doing it! Oh, yes, before, like, before they'd even finished the sentence. But he was already do it playing The Flash, and so it was, like, the most intricate thing to make these two films work, but he has, like, given everything He actually begged part. them to let him do both. And he is so wonderful in it. Yeah. So what, you guys have now seen the film, right? You saw the finished, uh, finished product. Uh, I haven't really properly seen it yet. 
Not I probably. Saw, I not saw probably. a little dinky version. I mean, not dinky, but my uh, I saw it on my dinky computer. Dinky version. <laughs> the kinky the, the, version. The, the dinky, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, uh, what surprised you about, you know, you put in all this work into shooting. Um, there's so many effects you don't see and things beyond just you guys on set. What really surprised you sitting there and watching um, the, the fruits of your labor? Oh. I can't say. The thing that surprised me, no one knows about and nobody had told me about. And it was Surprise! <laughs> I think what I found uh, uh, extraordinary was the scale of it, was this kind of epic quality, which I had read, but when I saw it, I don't know, I have too shoddy an imagination to have been able to picture this, uh, as kind of as I was talking about before, this good versus evil kind of macro battle going on. But at the same point, the heart of it, and, it, and there is, uh, I don't know, with films of this scale, sometimes you don't expect to be moved, and I was really moved by it. Um, I do think we might have a couple audience questions, do we? Um, well, are you near, uh, near a microphone? So I see, I got, oh, a Slytherin! Thank you. Thank you so much. We're cool, too. Um, we're not all evil. Uh, what is your question? So uh, this question is for Eddie. Uh, so going back to wand talk, you mentioned that Newt wouldn't have a wand made of leather or made of horn or any kind of animal product. Do you think if Newt was a muggle or a nomad, he would be an animal rights activist? Um, um, well, I mean, interestingly, like, almost certainly, but at the same point, he respects, like, when he goes down into his case, he's like, there's a carcass of meat that he's, like, um, sort of... He, he understands the need for all the animals to be fed, and um, uh, so... So I think I think he would definitely be an activist for sure because he is in in some world like in the magical world the fantastic piece is seen as a threat for giving away that wizards exist but he believes with a proper education plan and a system then then everyone should be able to live together in harmony but uh, a lot of people don't agree but no I would um, I, I would say so good question all right down over here in the front hi Eddie I love you so much oh thank you. <laughs> Okay, um, this question is for both um, Eddie and Catherine. I wanted to ask you, before the shooting, for the prep, what kind of training did you give yourself, or if the director gave you any sort of training, physical-wise or vocal-wise? Yeah. Well, Eddie had to do a lot of sit-ups and stuff. <laughs> for a useless scene that Dude, was cut. Tell that. He had to work out like every day and then they cut the scene where he took his shirt off. We had to do stunt training, which was just brilliant. I, yeah. I, and we had um, this amazing stunt team who were teaching us to do all, but like the wonderful things about doing some uh, stunts in the JK Rowling world is they are really kind of weird stunts. They're like not your, not your I had to sort of wrestle with a chandelier at one point. Like. Yeah, I run with a teapot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did you do a lot of training for that? No, but see, that's the thing that also is so much fun about it, is that, like, yeah, actually, it did hurt my arm. <laughs> we had this joke that we would get wand elbow, like tennis elbow on set, because there's something about holding it up all day that would give you a kind of cramp in your elbow. Yeah. But um, there were aspects to making this film that really felt like making a tiny little indie film. You know, we did do prep work and, and rehearsals and stuff, but a lot of things kind of came together on the day, so you'd get into the set and there's a kind of weird, crazy stack of boxes and they'd say, okay, we're gonna hang you from a wire at the top of those boxes. We'll put some knee pads on you, but you know, you'll be all right. And then, you know, you run, jump down all those boxes and then take, slide across the floor and catch something in this 
Can I say that? Uh, well, maybe catch something, maybe not catch anything at all, never mind. Um, but I'd never done it before, you know, and you just sort of figure it out as you go. And but that's the um, amazing that was really fun. You do all this stuff of like months of training beforehand, and then quite often you'll turn up on the day. Like I'd done months of training totally for, for one yeah. thing, for, for sort of riding some um, big animal. Yeah. And <laughs> And then it, you turned up on the day and suddenly you were being suspended in the air on wires atop this like green bucking bronco with like two guys dressed in full body sort of green body condom suits, like sort of like just throwing you around. And I was having to shout about teapots and insects. And I was like, whoa, no, 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 no. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't prep for this. <laughs> this was not a part of my months of training. Yeah. I love it. All right, guys, uh, I'm sorry. We actually, we, we are out of time. Oh, I know. I'm so sorry. Thank you guys for keeping the secrets. Oh, Eddie, Catherine. Girl. Let's, can we oh. ask her question? Go on, one more question. Nobody yell at me. Nobody yell at me. Do, go ahead. Do, go for it. What is your favorite um, beast? Beast. Uh, if you could keep oh, that's one. Cute. Oh, if I could keep one. That is a good turn on the question. Oh, yeah. You know, we get asked that question a lot, but not that... that but little, if you could keep one, because there are ones one. you love that are really hard work. Um, I gotta say the bow truckle. Yeah, me too. He's the little stick guy, and you can. Oh, you're, you want to say that? Too? No, we can Should both I say, say that. One? Yeah. He's, no. You know, it's like a lap dog version of a magical creature. It would be the easiest one to bring around, I think. And he's super needy and like loves yeah. Newt. Like and grips he... onto your fingers and. Oh, on that note. <laughs> on that note, uh, guys, thank you so much for coming out, Eddie thank and Catherine. Thank, thank you so much. Thank Thanks, guys. Okay, guys. Bye. So that is it for episode nine of EW's Binge of Harry Potter um, and beyond, because <laughs> clearly uh, we're, we're past Harry now. Although, no, we're not, because next week, episode 10, we're going to uh, end the podcast with Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And so many feelings and theories as well. The eighth story, 19 years later, um, we're going to take you through it, take you through what you need to know, um, what you don't need to know, what's got the internet freaking out. Um, and kind of wrap up everything that we didn't get to mention all throughout this <laughs> podcast, because God knows there was a lot that There's got so left out. There's so much, so much, but that's what um, next week's game is for, so yeah. get ready, Mark. Um, totally. So thanks for sticking with us. Uh, tweet us at Mark Snedeker or at C. Molly Smith. Or you can send us an email at binjaew.com. And otherwise, um, enjoy trying to find Fantastic Beasts. I do not know where to find them, but um, I know a guy. <laughs>